I'm Air Commodore Richard Broadridge. I'm the Deputy Chair of the Aerospace Medical Panel of the uh, Society. I'd like to welcome you all here this evening to the 2011 Stuart Lecture. What I'd like to do now is invite um, Air Vice Marshal Morris, Chief Staff Health and Director General Medical Services Royal Air Force to introduce our resident spin doctor, the speaker for tonight. Air Vice Marshal Morris. Ladies and gentlemen, and now to our speaker, Wing Commander Nick Green, who is probably quite well known to most of you, but a few salient facts. Most importantly, he is a Westminster graduate. <coughs> His medical training included a honours degree in physiology, RAF commission in 1990, and he's been involved in aviation research till, since 1991, received a PhD in 2007, and has been my consultant advisor in aviation medicine since 2009. Ladies and gentlemen, we call Nick Green. Chief of Staff Health, Stuart Trustees, Senior Officers, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the uh, kind introduction. It's indeed a great honour to be here presenting the uh, Stuart Lecture. There haven't actually been very many spin doctors, G doctors, uh, that have presented before. Um, the ones that I recall are Dr. Earl Wood and Dr. Andy Pryor, both of whom we will meet, um, at least figuratively, uh, during, during the presentation. Now, this could so easily have been centrifuge spotting with Nick, um, so I've had to work... Um, <laughs> hard not to make it a kind of train spotting experience but what I'm trying to do is uh, tell the story of G and G protection and a little bit of space uh, but from a different perspective uh, and from the perspective of the centrifuge and so I've given a little sort of historical timeline that we will work through. Now ABM Stewart has been mentioned already it is customary uh, uh, at this point to say a few words about him. Um, here we see him in a, in a slightly more uh, active pose than the usual uh, photo that's, uh, that's, that's shown at this point. Um, but actually, as we're going to meet him later on during the, uh, during the presentation, I'll, I'll, I'll not say any more about him just now. But first of all, why am I talking about G? Why are we interested in it? Why have we got centrifuges? I think the first thing to do is, is really to look at the problem. Many of you have seen this before. Take one healthy RAF pilot and spin um, and... Um, and this sort of thing happens. The G shown in the uh, top right-hand corner. There's a bit of sound. I don't have to turn it up. Thank you. You've got to have a G lock clip, haven't you? And then as he wakes up again, the, uh, the funky chicken. <coughs> Now, clearly, we don't want that to happen when we're piloting uh, one of our very expensive aircraft. Um, and <laughs> the risk <laughs> a confusion afterwards, very common with G-induced loss of consciousness as well. That's G-induced loss of consciousness. That's why we're interested in it. Uh, and that's really what we're going to be talking about. Why does it happen? How do we pre 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 prevent it from happening? Um, I'll say, this is, this is, this is a, a talk with a historical leaning and uh, um, we're going to start right back as far as I could go um, and that is before science was called science uh, in these days science was called natural philosophy and we actually start rather bizarrely with Charles Darwin's grandfather um, Erasmus Darwin 
who wrote a treatise called Zoonomia in 1795. Oh, by the way, I've just tagged a little timeline in at the bottom for, there, for those of you who get disorientated at any point during the uh, talk to, to show where we are. Now, Erasmus Darwin um, found out something quite interesting by talking to mill workers uh, and engineers who talked to mill workers and found that they had a rather unusual practice, I don't know if this is boring working in the, in the mills, of, of actually lying across the millstones as they were spinning around and making themselves go unconscious as the thing spun around. There's a little extract that says actually that. And, and it's very interesting that even in 1795, they'd associated spinning round with going unconscious and indeed that it had something to do with blood. Um, and what he said is that the blood was compressed at the extremities and compressed the brain, which made you go unconscious. So maybe not quite right, but, but you know, not a million miles off for 1795. Um, and one might even go so far as to say that uh, Erasmus Darwin invented the centrifuge. He got together with uh, James Watt uh, of steam engine fame, uh, another famous uh, engineer, um, and they designed this gadget which is essentially a centrifuge. And, and you put the uh, patient, as it was meant to be, uh, lying down on here, and you turn the handle, and they get spun round. And the idea was, given the, uh, the, what the experience of the uh, people working in the mill, that if you spun them round fast enough, they'd go to sleep, and that that might be useful for treating certain diseases. Now, obviously, actually, if you spun them round on this thing fast enough and made them go to sleep, it probably wouldn't be very good for them at all. But it is essentially the first human centrifuge we've seen designed. They didn't actually build the thing, thankfully, probably. Um, <clears throat> however, not long afterwards, in the Charité Hospital in Berlin, they did build something uh, not massively different to that. Um, this uh, by uh, a Dr. Ernst Horn, um, who was head of uh, psychiatric medicine, there's a clue coming up already, at uh, the Charité Hospital. Uh, this device, I'm sure some of the reproductions here are, are not not great quality, but basically the uh, the patient lay down uh, there, uh, Igor, the uh, doctor's assistant, turned the handle very rapidly, and this thing spun round at around about 60 RPM and developed round about 4 or 5 G, and we'll get to which direction, but minus 4 or 5 GZ, um, for two minutes. And apparently this was the treatment, and I quote, for raving madness. Uh, uh, that's what it says. And it did have a remarkably good effect, probably because once you'd been on that thing, you didn't want to go on it again, and you would do anything that the doctors said um, to prevent that. So medical uses, initially, as far as I could find in the literature, for, uh, for centrifuges. Um, we then jump on quite a long way. We jump on about 100 years or so, uh, and we get into the entertainment business. Um, and uh, and we, we run into this character called Sir Hiram Maxim, who was a bit of an entrepreneur, was into all sorts of things, tried to build a few aeroplanes. But one of the things that he built was this captive flying machine, um, of which there is a rather blurry photo there. Uh, this was at the Crystal Palace exhibition, um, and in 1903, they were setting this thing up, testing it, got a young engineer, Dr. Thurston, who's also pictured there, who in fact later ended up being quite a famous aeronautical engineer, but got the young Dr. Thurston to test this thing and to find out just how fast they should let it go when they put the general public on the machine. Again, there's a little transcript of uh, what poor Dr. Thurston went up to, uh, written there, but essentially, I'll summarize, they put him in the machine and wound it up to 6.87G, which, as we G-doctors say, is quite a lot. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, 
he lost consciousness in a similar manner to the, to the poor chap that we saw earlier on um, on, on the Farnborough centrifuge. Um, and it was only because a workman was watching and managed to tell him to switch the thing off um, that, uh, that, it, that, that, that he woke up again as the thing slowed down. So that's our first really properly recorded G-induced loss of consciousness um, in, in an amusement arcade. Um, poor Dr. Thurston was bung back on the machine again in the afternoon after lunch to try it again, but at 3G, which I think they settled on as a more sedate uh, um, version. Now, I've not been to Blackpool, but it's still there, apparently. So if any of you have been there, um, I'd like to know if it still goes at 3G or even 6.8. It does, does it? It's still, still 3G. Fantastic. Um, so that, let's say that's, that's, that's our sort of recorded, recorded G-log. Now, what, what were these people doing? I said I'd sneak a bit of a bit of science, a little bit of knowledge in here, so uh, now's time for just a little bit. Um, we need to understand about things going round in circles, and apologies to the uh, diploma course, we're probably fed up with this. But um, what, what, what we're talking about here is an acceleration. We're all used to acceleration in our car. We get in the car, put our foot down, car goes faster, speedo moves from 0 to 60. That's change of speed, that's acceleration, that's what we're used to. But acceleration is actually a vector quantity, according to the physics definition. And that means that a change of direction or a change of speed is an acceleration. And that means that if we drive our car around in a circle, round a roundabout, or we, we swing around in a little ball like this, at exactly the same speed, we are actually accelerating. The speed is staying the same, but the direction is changing. And that makes it, that makes it an acceleration. And the acceleration is in physics terms, towards the center of uh, the center of the circle, center of the turn. If you're in the car, driving very rapidly around the roundabout, you don't actually feel that you're being accelerated towards the center. You feel a force in the opposite direction. And this is due to Newton's third law, the um, law of inertia. So um, what these people in these various spinning devices from the 1700s and 1800s and 1900s were, were experiencing was uh, a centrifugal reaction, centrifugal force, uh, developed by this spinning motion, which is acceleration. So in, in, in G physiology, we use the terms acceleration, G, um, uh, force. But actually what we're talking about really is, 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 is acceleration caused by going in circles. And of course, in 1903, man invented another device that could accelerate by going in circles. Um, and that was when we started um, powered flight. And uh, these things actually... Um, could, could turn around tight circles really quite quickly. And the G that was developed in the first days of flight was really quite surprisingly high. So it wasn't long, given that there was a war also to push the technology on a little bit, wasn't, wasn't surprising that these effects that had been noticed on mill wheels and amusement rides started to be noticed in aircraft. And the first scientific report we have about G... Um, that's in any literature anywhere, um, was published by Sir Henry Head, who was a, a, an eminent neurologist at the time, and uh, wrote a report for the Medical Research Council. And these were predominantly flight experiences during about 1915, I think, so actually during World War I. And specifically this aircraft, the Sopwith triplane, um, clue is in the name, uh, it's, got, uh, it's got three wings, which seems to make it better at going round corners for uh, aerodynamic reasons that I probably don't understand. Um, but uh, what they noticed was the classic symptoms that we see right now of a business of what we call grey out, vision dimming and losing vision. And if the G continues, then uh, you lose consciousness. And, and in the terms of the pilot that was, uh, was doing the 
study. Um, they, at the time, they thought this was, was fainting. So there already, 1915, we're making people unconscious in aeroplanes, much earlier than maybe you would have guessed. This continued. Schneider Trophy racing in the 20s uh, involved pulling a reasonable amount of G, around about 5 Five and a half G was their best turning speed. And again, they had uh, a number of problems in these, uh, in these air racing aircraft as they flew between pylons, went round the corners quickly, um, with grey out and black out. So it was really time to start doing some research, start looking at what was causing all of this. And, uh, and who better to start than the French? So actually, the French started with the very first centrifuge research into the physiology of G. One problem, they built a monster centrifuge, 54 feet diameter, but it only did 2.5 G. So unfortunately, the, and I'm being a little cynical here, concluded that G wasn't really a problem, and that's because their centrifuge didn't go fast enough. Um, so we didn't really get, despite the, the, the impressive centrifuge that they built, didn't really get any useful research out of the French centrifuge, but they were the, the trailblazers at the time. Things became a little bit more physiological um, in the 1930s, uh, and probably more in the way that you would expect things to go, when rather than uh, um, bold pilots, we took small squeaky mice and put them on the centrifuge. This is a small rotating platform uh, done, uh, developed by doctors Youngblood and Neuens in, in uh, Holland, and they were the first people really to do proper science looking at the effects of G. They did x-rays, they did invasive blood pressure monitoring, um, did ECG, uh, looking at what was going on. So really the first G physiology uh, there uh, done on mice, but still really just tentative steps. And again, um, what does it take to push technology forward? It takes money, and what makes people spend money? War, quite often. So it was the coming of the Second World War, really, that enabled us to take the next big step in the story of, of the centrifuge and, and understanding of G. Uh, uh, in the US, Dr. Harry Armstrong, uh, in, in Germany, uh, Dr. von Dieringshofen, um, both received fairly good funding from their um, respective departments of defense and started studying the problem of G and aircraft properly. And this meant building centrifuges. So... Uh, Centrifuge spotting, here we go. This is the first American centrifuge. It was built uh, at Wright Field, and it was built in a balloon hangar. I mean, it looks like it's built in somebody's office, um, and it looks fairly Heath Robinson, to be example. There's a little pulley with a motor there and a man um, just sort of lying down um, in, this, in this cage. But this thing was capable of doing 20G. Now, I wouldn't want to do... 20G on that thing. Um, and you'll also notice that the poor chap that was lying in there, actually, you know, you're actually, you get in and you sort of lie down on your side. Um, it is not the more comfortable modern type centrifuge where you're sitting upright and as the thing spins around, the gondola swings out to line you up with the right axis of acceleration. This, you just climb in and lie down and, and spin around. To be fair to the, to, to the US, they developed a number of other um, Centrifuges, this was literally in service for a year or two, and, and they developed the, the technology very quickly. But that's the first one that they had. Um, and that was actually 1935, that device. Um, somewhere around about 1938, uh, the Germans also developed a centrifuge. Apologies for the poor uh, reproduction. It's very hard to find uh, images of these, uh, of these centrifuges. But their first one was in Berlin. Um, very German solution. Uh, very well engineered, uh, very robustly made, and a fantastic platform 
for doing science. So they'd really sorted out all of the physiological monitoring. They'd got all of the uh, channels for recording blood pressure, ECG, EEG, all that sort of thing, um, which is actually quite difficult to get to, to measure when you're spinning around and particularly to get the signals of the things that you recorded back um, or to enter any kind of recording device. So very early on, um, the Germans had got a good device uh, for measuring that. And in fact, they built, built, built an even better one uh, later in the war, but were unable to use it um, due to, uh, to air raids. So uh, this was the one that they used predominantly. Um, but certainly movement on, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, as I guess you might expect, um, just before the war. As the war broke out, Many more centrifuges were built, um, centrifuges in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Australia had one. Um, certainly Canada uh, built uh, their own centrifuge. And uh, many other nations, not the UK, we'll come to them, many other nations <laughs> built centrifuges. Um, special mention uh, must go to the Mayo Clinic in the US. Um, this was... Uh, Still a fairly early design of centrifuge with this kind of uh, cross uh, sort of truss type arrangement uh, and a subject sitting there, but now in a gondola that actually uh, rotates as the thing spins around. Um, but this is the centrifuge that uh, Dr. Earl Wood used. Now, he was kind of the godfather of G, I suppose, in the US. And uh, this is Earl Wood in his younger days um, with an arterial line in uh, on the centrifuge ready to be um, as are we all subjects in our own experiments on the centrifuge. And um, he did a, a lot of uh, intracardiac catheterization work. And if you look carefully at this reproduction, this, I think, is a, is a sort of stylized image of that work they did. They actually had the centrifuge spinning around. Then another experimenter lying on the top there um, to assist with the, with the technique, and that was related to the, the cardiac catheterization that they did at the time. So a lot of work on understanding what was happening to blood pressure um, under G, which is really what we wanted to know. So what did they find out, these, these, these early researchers? Well, here's a pilot sitting in, a, sitting in an injection seat, and um, what we do is we take a, an aircraft, uh, here's a small picture of an aircraft, and we pull back on the stick in the aircraft, and that makes the aircraft either climb or turn, depending on which way the aircraft is pointing. And so what we're getting is that acceleration that we talked about earlier on in this direction, okay? And what we get, as we saw in the diagram earlier on, is a centrifugal reaction in the opposite direction. So the plane accelerates headwards, the pilot feels a force that actually is pushing them downwards into their seat. Now, Hollywood's got a lot to answer for here because it tends to give the impression that when the G-force comes on, pilots are uh, pushed backwards into their seat. Um, but that is not the case. Uh, the the G-force is downwards. Um, so here's our pilot, and predominantly when planes are maneuvering, the pilot is being forced downwards into their seat, as is the blood. Take a pilot, put on some G-force. What happens? Well, uh, the thing that everybody knows about is the fact that the blood tends to travel south. So normally, your blood volume tends to live mostly actually in your thorax, a lot of blood in your thorax. Put on some G, and that blood tends to move uh, to the lower limbs. Therefore, there's less blood coming back to the heart. That reduces your cardiac output and so drops your blood pressure. But actually, the more important effect is related to a hydrostatic gradient that develops between the heart and the head. And effectively, what that means is uh, it's uh, as, as you go uphill between the heart and the brain, the pressure drops. And the pressure drops by about 23 millimeters of mercury per G, the upshot of which is somewhere between 4 and 5 G. If you're a normal person, 
with normal blood pressure, you'll have no blood pressure at all left in your brain at uh, at 4 or 5G. And that, as you might imagine, is not conducive to consciousness. So um, with those two things going on, somewhere between 4 and 5G, no blood to your head. It's good night, Vienna, as they say. Um, Right. So seemed to be some work going on in America. What was happening in the UK? The answer is people were getting a bit worried. Uh, in 1939, there was a meeting of the Flying Personnel Research Committee, and they did realize at that point that they were somewhat behind the curve um, and that there was all this work going on in other countries, particularly, obviously, Germany that they were worried in, um, and that uh, British research needed to be done, the British needed to be um, up to speed on what was happening. And initially, this work was uh, led by Group Captain Struan Marshall. The obvious thing to do would be to buy a centrifuge like everybody else, However, of course, this is the UK, and uh, that's not what we did. Um, and we didn't do it because they said it was too expensive. Uh, it was at £7,000. And they said it was too high risk and it would never work, um, which is all, I have to say, very familiar to me. Um, so it was decided that we would uh, do the work in aircraft instead. Now, approval was given at the end of the war, actually, uh, for us to get a centrifuge, and we'll come to that in a bit. Um, but um, it didn't, because all the contractors were busy repairing the infrastructure of the country, um, the thing was actually delayed until 1955, so we'll come to that. But this is the point um, where squadron leader, as, as was uh, Bill Stewart, enters our story. Um, and he joined the RAF Physiological Laboratory in 1940, and he was given the job of, of sorting out the G problem, basically. And as I said, the platform that he had were, were, were aircraft. He actually had a variety of aircraft to use, um, but a lot of the work was done in an aircraft like this, which is a fairy battle. It's not a desperately good high G aeroplane, and they sort of worked quite hard to make it do what they wanted. All sorts of serviceability problems with these aircraft, um, trying to get the things to fly on a regular basis. The research setting, as ever, was not really very high operational priority. All the, all the effort was going to keep the actual warfighting aircraft uh, flying. So they had a real, a real struggle uh, on a daily basis to, to get these things airborne to do, to do the work. Um, but essentially, he did all of our pioneering G work in the back of one of these things, him and some colleagues. And I do have a video clip, um, which is from 1940, of uh, that work. And I'll try and point out as we go along, uh, there we go, there is a G-meter, which whizzes up to around about 6G, but you've got to be eagle-eyed to see it. Where's my zapper? There it is. So that's winding up to uh, around about um, 6G up here. Um, this one, staying conscious, although not looking desperately happy. So that is uh, a fairly rare bit of film from the original uh, uh, work in the fairy battle. I'm just seeing what G they got to there. Not looking too happy. Um, I know that look. So, um, from this series of work, uh, there is a, a classic uh, series of stills. There is a video of this, but I could not track it down anywhere. But this is this is this is Bill Stewart actually losing consciousness um, in the back of the ferry battle, and you see him uh, uh, very much in the, like the clip we've just seen, but obviously with the loss of consciousness there um, after around about 12 seconds, and then uh, the recovery again there. This is a, a very well publicised clip. In fact, Bill Stewart lost consciousness over 200 times personally doing this kind of research, um, and it. I believe, affected his health. He certainly was very fatigued 
from doing this, although he was working extremely hard, so um, there was part of that too. But but it's also said that he got a little bit depressed and so on. Just just really not surprising from from repeatedly um, making himself unconscious uh, in the uh, in the pursuit of trying to understand what was going on. And indeed, he was an, awarded an, an AFC um, for this work. Now, having said that, he had difficulties in that. My talk is about centrifuges, and he didn't have one. Actually, um, flying in an aircraft gave him a, a unique advantage as well, because actually, a centrifuge is a very artificial environment, and the aircraft is where the problem really is at. And uh, and so he had a number of advantages as well in flying, um, and fly, doing doing this research uh, in aircraft, and brought a whole new perspective, which I think a lot of the other researchers uh, didn't do. This is some of the handwritten uh, stuff actually from. Uh, AVM Stewart's work, and this is looking at, uh, we don't need to go into the details, but it's looking at, uh, at how, uh, individuals, particular G, G tolerance changes with time. You can see over, over quite a, quite a range of time here, uh, uh, a, uh, an improvement in, um, uh, in G tolerance. Um, so, um, as I say, he, uh, <coughs> uh, worked very hard, was recognized Slightly afterwards, and here is a, uh, a quote from the press, but as, a, as an unnamed hero, um, and I'm very um, grateful to Callum Stewart for, for providing this, um, but he, he does get a, uh, a, a honourable uh, mention down there. And, and I was actually very surprised when I read something that Bill Stewart had written in 1945 in the Journal of Physiology, um, which essentially summed up everything that I know now. Um, uh, in terms of the level of understanding that they developed in 1945 as to the physiology of G. I had no idea, really, until I'd read this, as to just how much they got out of this work. So it was really very impressive, um, the, the, the level of information that they got. Now, they didn't just look at the background uh, as to what was causing the problem. Obviously, we were very interested in the solution. And uh, so some of the work was looking at uh, testing G suits. And this is the first real G-suit that was used or trialed um, in the world. And this was developed with a chap called uh, Dr. Wilbur Franks, who was a Canadian, came over from Canada to uh, Farnborough to develop this suit. It's actually a fluid-filled G-suit, um, rather natally. I like, I always like the way he just rolls up his trouser leg there just to show that under his RAF number one uniform, he's still able to wear this, uh, this fluid-filled suit. And that's it being tested in, and that's Dr. Franks, being tested in the same uh, flight scenario that you've just seen um, uh, uh, Marshall Stewart flying in. Now, this thing worked quite well in its prototype. didn't work quite so well, actually, when it was productionized, this is often the case, but rather disappointingly, they were so worried that this thing would fall into enemy hands um, that they weren't allowed to use it over enemy territory. So a great advantage, but don't use it. The enemy might find it if somebody's shot down. So it didn't really get to be used very much, and they ended up throwing a lot of them away in the end, which is which is quite unfortunate. And in fact, a similar story um, for, for, for some of the other G-suits. It's one of the other G-suits. Um, in Australia, Professor uh, Sidney Cotton, um, remember they had a centrifuge in Australia, developed a, a, a kind of pneumatic G-suit, um, shown on the left there, and that was put into their, their Spitfires, but they were rather concerned that the Spitfires that they were flying out of, of Darwin up in the north didn't have the performance um, to match the Japanese aircraft they were flying against. So again, um, they, they weren't allowed to go up against them, essentially. So these, uh, so these Spitfires, although they had a G-suit, they didn't really get used in, in, in combat. Um, so I have to say, 
as is ever the case. The first really proper operational use of the, uh, the anti-G suit was by uh, the Americans. They introduced it in late 1944, um, and that's the G suit on the right. And that was actually used fairly extensively and gave apparently a very, very strong advantage against the Germans in the latter part of the war, something that's not widely publicized. But G suit really just at the tail end of the war and really effectively the Americans only. So World War II is over. Um, What's going to happen next? Um, well, again, interestingly, in Britain, <coughs> the British view was... I'm surprised. This is the British view um, at the time. Um, not really interested, actually. Thank you. Um, from, 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 our, from, our, from our operators, from our, from our chiefs. Um, so uh, what should we do? Well, as it happens, um, in 1955, we did get our centrifuge that we've been trying to get since 1939. And uh, it was installed at Farnborough. 17th of May 1955 is when it became operational. Really, um, a, uh, many of you will have ridden on the thing, I'm sure. Still the same machine, unchanged almost entirely um, since that point. But, but a very nice machine and very much specifically designed for research. So rather like that German machine that I pointed out earlier on, lots of features, very conducive, um, to doing quality research and to getting the, the data from the instrumented uh, individual in the gondola. Um, designed originally to go to 30G through zero, quite a lot. Um, we don't tend to go that high. Uh, and I'm not really sure whether it's ever been that high. Um, but also, interestingly, designed with two gondolas, so having somebody at each end. And the original uh, documentation uh, that came with the centrifuge there we are, um, actually implies that you can spin two people at the same time, have a pilot in each end, and they both had a controller, so they could actually speed the centrifuge up or slow it down from within the gondola. And the person who was demanding the slowest speed is the one that won, so catering for the kind of lowest common denominator. Very un-aircrew-like. Normally, you'd, you'd give it to the guy who demanded the most, and the other guy would just have to, you know... Take it like a like a man or whatever, but uh, but no no it was it was it was very equitable. Uh, uh, but that system was taken out quite early, uh, and now when we operate the farm centrifuge, as I say, very much unchanged actually. The, the pilots or, or experimental subjects sitting in the centrifuge don't have any control over what's going on. Um, so that was in the UK. Very much a Rolls Royce centrifuge, very smooth. If you've ever ridden many centrifuges, very comfortable ride in the farm centrifuge compared to some of the others. But over on the other side of the Atlantic, other things were going on. And specifically, they were building a monster. This monster uh, was being built at uh, US Naval Base, Johnsville. Um, and this thing did 40G, um, which is a lot. Uh, it had a high G onset rate, which we'll come back to later. It had a, a capsule or a gondola, which could range in temperature from 0 to 200 Fahrenheit. And it was an altitude chamber as well. So you could decompress this thing to altitude as well as freezing, as well as pulling G. Why were they building a beast like that? The answer is John Glenn there. This was in preparation for space. Um, and this was for the research and the training of the uh, Project uh, Mercury astronauts. And uh, that's what really led it. As, a, as, a, as an aside, so this is about the early 50s, 50. Three, I think. As an aside, um, I found this on the internet, um, rather ignominious end to the gondola uh, that you saw in the last photo, which is uh, rusting somewhere, and they're trying to, uh, at the moment, raise some money to stop it being scrapped completely. The Americans are in the space race, but we shouldn't forget that the Russians 
actually led the way for quite some time. They had a number of human centrifuges as well. Unfortunately, um, I don't have any pictures of those. Very, very difficult to get contemporaneous pictures of Russian centrifuges. But they did have a centrifuge for dogs because we should remember that actually it was Laker, who was one of the first Russians into space um, uh, in uh, 1957. And this is a doggy centrifuge. So there's doggies spinning around uh, there um, in Russia. Uh, I don't know whether they're being trained. Um, I think they were, actually. I think there was some kind of uh, sort of habituation to the G-force that they, they would spin them around. Um, so a, a, Russian, uh, a Russian dog centrifuge, um, which uh, helped them lead the way. And it was really all systems go with space. The Project Mercury, um, up to 12G on some re-entry profiles of Project Mercury, lots and lots of G. 12G is a lot, um, and uh, and uh, you really needed to be able to be trained, and you needed research to understand what was going on, and that enabled, as I say, uh, John Glenn to get into space. And if you look at the documents from the 1950s, there were some fantastic plans for um, even more complicated uh, dynamic simulators that, that that pull lots of G, that decompress, that did, did everything that that uh, centrifuge I've just shown you did, and more, thinking that uh, the forces involved with space travel would be increasingly more difficult. As it panned out, that was completely not the case. And by the time we get to the shuttle transportation system, his discovery, which is, as you know, just made its last flight last week, this is 3G for three minutes. This is back to Haran Maxim's machine turned down low. And, and really tolerating 3G for three minutes is not, uh, is not really any great difficulty. And so that great driver, um, that had been the case for pushing these amazing centrifuges that were going to be built in Russia and in, um, uh, in the US had gone because, because the G-forces, as the rocket technology improved, was reduced and reduced and reduced. And that's control of the things as they re-enter as much as it is launching the rockets. So suddenly, space centrifuges was not flavor of the month anymore. What was going on with the centrifuge business, though? Well, actually, fairly workmanlike devices were still being built around the world. Again, a bunch of them. I've shown the Brooks one in the US, built in the mid-60s uh, at the uh, School of uh, Aerospace Medicine, um, which uh, many people are familiar with. Uh, again, a good workmanlike machine, much of the US uh, G research done on this machine. Again, not really designed as a training machine initially, as a research machine. Mid-60s, what else was going on? Well, people were thinking more widely. I know it's a bit blurry, but this is a patent for a birthing centrifuge. And the uh, the lucky birthy, bertha, the, the, the woman is here, and, and there's a net, unfortunately, round about here. To, to catch the baby, and this is this is a serious patent. Um, and uh, <laughs> luckily for all male and female kind, um, not not actually built. Uh, I'm glad to say. So centrifuges moved forward. We've 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 reached now the mid to late 60s. In fact, James Bond I think was 72. So what was going on? Well, everything keeps changing. The theme of this is jumping between one thing and another as the problem that we're trying to solve keeps changing. And the aircraft had now changed. And the performance of the aircraft in the 1970s was getting remarkably better, um, particularly with respect to their, 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 uh, their G envelope. And specifically what happens 
is that the Americans introduced this aircraft, the F-16. <clears throat> what happened when they brought in the F-16 was they found out that an awful lot of people were starting to go unconscious in the aircraft. We were getting a lot of reports of G-induced loss, con- loss of consciousness. And the first survey, proper survey that we know about of air crew asking, have you ever lost consciousness in your aeroplane, um, was done by a chap called Pluter in 1984. He found around about 12% of all US Air Force air, air crew had lost consciousness. But when you ask the F-16 drivers, one in three of them had lost consciousness in this particular aircraft. So what was going on? Well, the difference between this aircraft and its predecessors was pulled more G, but predominantly it had a high G onset rate, and that was causing problems. So I need to tell you a little bit more physiology, I'm afraid, so that you understand what I'm talking about. What is G onset rate? Here's a graph, <coughs> which I hope will ooh, slid a bit, help to understand uh, what's going on. So this is a graph of time and G-force. And as time goes by, for a particular pilot pulling G in an aeroplane, the G-force builds up. And for this pilot, for this particular pilot, G is building up. So they've got to, I don't know, 2G in uh, 3 seconds and then 3G in about 5 seconds. And as they keep pulling more and more and more G, they enter a zone here where their vision starts to get affected. And then this is the thing that we call grey out. I mentioned it earlier on. Classically, a tunnelling in of vision uh, from the periphery to the centre. And that keeps on tunnelling in. Unless you do something about it, like stop pulling G or do some G straining, which we'll come to, then you end up in this zone here, which is loss of consciousness. Why is that occurring? Well, it's occurring actually because retinal blood flow gets stopped before head-level blood flow. But what happens if the G comes on very, very quickly, like that. Well, in this particular scenario, this is our F-16 now, where the G is building up almost to 9G within a very short space of time, within a second or two. Um, the pilot whizzes up to 9G, sits there, thinks, well, this is all right, I've got no grey out, so I must be all right, I'm not going to lose consciousness, and then abruptly loses consciousness. Why does that happen? Well, there's a little bit of time here whilst the, the, the oxygen reserves in the brain and the blood are used up. But essentially what's happening here is they're being strangled. They're being just the blood supply to their head and neck is cut off instantly. And after three or four seconds, the blood supply to the eye and the brain both cease together. So in this setting, the blood supply to the eye fails first because the buildup of G is slow. In this setting, the, the buildup of G is very quick. The blood just stops. After three or four seconds, you lose vision, but you also lose consciousness instantly. So no warning signs for the pilot. No time to think to do anything about it. And this caused a lot of people to go unconscious. What was the solution? Well, the first solution was back to the centrifuge, boys. So what they did in the US in the 1980s was introduce centrifuge training for their aircrew. Uh, the centrifuge on the right there, the Holloman centrifuge, which was built in the 1980s uh, in the US for uh, uh, centrifuge, uh, specifically for centrifuge training of pilots. Centrifuge on the left, guess what? It's the Farmer centrifuge again, because that's the only one we've got. Uh, what did we teach them? Well, we taught them the G-straining maneuver. Here, ably demonstrated by an anesthetic colleague of mine. Um, and this consists of muscle tensing and a cyclical valsalva, for all of those that heard my lectures in these times, um, which made your eyes bulge out a bit. But here, quite successfully getting to somewhere between 8 and 8.5G with a G-suit on as well. It's 
harder than it looks um, and it really needs a fair amount of practice to get it right and the Americans introduced this first in the 1980s and because of the strength of numbers that they had um, across uh, the large number of aircraft that they flew they were able to demonstrate statistically that after they introduced G training um, the amount of G lock loss of consciousness um, was, uh, was was reduced so they're the only ones really that validated uh, this kind of training and it's pretty much mandatory training for anybody who flies a fast jet pretty much anywhere in the world uh, right now so G training um, is uh, is uh, on a centrifuge um, is 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 very widespread so our centrifuge has moved from being a research device for an awful lot of its time um, to a training device. And most of us now, actually, when we think of centrifuge, we tend to think more of it as a, as a training device. And that was really the step in, those, in the 1980s um, when that was identified. But unfortunately, the aircraft technology was marching on. We could just about cope with the F-16, just about. And then they went and invented the Typhoon and the F-22. Even more G, uh, G for longer and even higher G onset rates. Both of these aircraft really very, very capable performance designed for dogfighting and beating absolutely everything. So we've, we've crept up to late 1990s to 2000. Um, and unfortunately, even with the G-suit, which had remained unchanged essentially since that G-suit that I showed you from uh, 1944 from the Americans, essentially the same suit, that and the best centrifuge training in the world wasn't really going to be enough. So it was time to develop some new anti-G technology, um, uh, and that's what was done. Now, it's somewhat ironic, I think, that um, to do that, we used our 1955 centrifuge. So the Farnborough centrifuge, designed for research an awful long time ago, um, uh, came up with the mainstay of the work to develop the kit that is used in Typhoon. The improvements in this kit are in the design of the G-trousers, and essentially uh, they're now full-coverage G-trousers, which means they squeeze a lot more blood out of your legs. Sounds simple, but an awful lot of design work in making sure that that actually uh, works properly, is comfortable, you can walk and get in and out of your aircraft, all sorts of other real practical problems. So full-coverage G-trousers and pressure breathing for G-protection. You saw the the the, uh, the the subject earlier on in the centrifuge taking great breaths in and straining. This system automates that to a certain extent. So as the G builds up, then they get pressurized breathing gas that increases into thoracic pressure, that increases, uh, literally squeezes the heart like a bag, increases your systolic pressure, puts up your heart level blood pressure, gets over that hydrostatic gradient and gives you a little bit of blood left at head level. So the combination of those two things um, gave much improved G protection. But remember I said this device, great though it is, great platform for research at Farnborough, has an onset rate of 1G per second. Typhoon, we were talking about a minimum of 10G per second, maybe 15G per second. So the Farnborough centrifuge, 1G to 9G in about realistically 10 or 11 seconds by the time it had finally sort of settled down a bit. Typhoon, 600 milliseconds. So really a very, very different setting. And so we needed more than a centrifuge um, at Farnborough to prove this stuff. What did we do? We did what we always do, and we went back to an aeroplane again. So a lot of the work um, that was done for the Typhoon kit was actually developed in the great, uh, great, great, 
grandson, or probably further on than that, of the ferry battle that uh, Bill Stewart used um, in the RAF Center of Aviation Medicine and previously Institute of Aviation Medicine Hawk aircraft, which were flying test beds for this kit, had all of the equipment required to drive the Typhoon system, the Typhoon uh, pressure breathing and uh, G-suit, and also lots of physiological monitoring equipment and system monitoring equipment to make sure it all worked properly. I mentioned uh, uh, that two previous Stuart lecturers would uh, take part and uh, uh, sadly uh, departed uh, Dr. Andy Pryor, who still makes the best video clip here, is about to demonstrate um, uh, essentially work that he uh, kit that he did an awful lot of work on um, up to 9G. So this is on the centrifuge at 9G. Um, at heart level. Chatting away. The trousers inflated. Five, six, seven, eight G, and just coming up to nine G. I'm aware that there's pressure in the mask, but of course I can still talk. Slight dimness of vision, but nothing to uh, get too concerned about. Just try some moderate head movements at nine G. Taking care not to allow the G to catch my head and neck. Vision still clear, and otherwise sitting relaxed. Certainly not spreading. Can snap leak from the last drawers I'm talking. Now, Andy does make it look very easy, um, and he had had a lot of practice on it. Um, but there is still a requirement to train our air crew to use this kit to get the best out of it, and and particularly if they've been used to using um, the old-style kit and they've got a G-straining manoeuvre, which isn't particularly good, and they combine that with this kit. It doesn't always give them great protection. So we do, we do still require um, that air crew get centrifuge training to do that. Um, and unfortunately... They don't like centrifuge training very much because they don't like centrifuges. I had to address this at some point, and now is the now is the now is the moment. Many of you will have experienced the centrifuge. Probably many of you at my hands. Apologies again. Um, and um, you all know that the sick bag can be involved with the centrifuge experience, and that's because you're going round in a very small circle. And as you go round in a very small circle, it does very unpleasant things to your vestibular system. Um, there is a very complex vestibular illusion, which I don't really fully understand, um, which is a combination of Coriolis, GXS, and something else. Um, that occurs as the centrifuge slows down, the gondola rolls in, um, and it manifests particularly in most people, as a very strong pitch-down sensation as the thing stops. Many of you all know exactly what I'm talking about, coupled with very, very strong vertical nystagmus. Um, most aircrew go, oh, this is really horrible, uh, but some of them are sick. Um, and, and obviously that's not terribly conducive to training. Um, and uh, this has been a problem for many years, particularly so, obviously, with uh, those older machines, um, those research machines that we pressed into service to provide our centrifuge training. So pilots in these machines, they're not in control of the centrifuge. They're sitting there in the doctor's torture device. It doesn't look like an aeroplane. It doesn't feel like an aeroplane. Um, the whole thing is very much like being spun round in a metal can. And, um, and so whilst I teach the air crew how to do the G-straining maneuver, I sometimes wonder just how much of it really actually transfers back to the aeroplane because the thing is, is so different. Uh, and this is really a problem that's been recognized, um, not only with the old research machines, but with some of the early training machines as well, where they literally just sit in a tin can, get spun around till they've 
done whatever the doctor wanted them to do, they can just get away. Um, and that's not really a very, very good basis for training. So now we move ourselves onward into the, into the uh, 2000s. Centrifuges also evolved. And uh, there are uh, now new, uh, new technology centrifuges available, which basically address some of the problems that we've been talking about over the last few minutes. Uh, the key ones are we need the G onset rate, so how fast the centrifuge builds up the G um, to match what the aeroplane does to make the training valid. So we're talking about something up to the order of 10 G per second, um, certainly getting up to the G load in round about a second, something like that. So the Farnborough centrifuge, 10 seconds, it's very difficult to train air crew and say, well, actually, in the aeroplane, it would be like this, but in the centrifuges like this, it, it doesn't transfer very well because the techniques that you need to use are actually slightly different. Also, we want to make the thing a little bit more like um, like flying. We want to make it seem like they're actually in an aeroplane, not in um, the, the doctor's spinny round mental uh, patient treatment device, which sometimes I think they feel that it is. Let's just think a little bit more about G-onset rate, though. The technical problems with, with designing a centrifuge that spins around and reproduces these aircraft acceleration loads are, are not to be sniffed at. Let's, here's a centrifuge. Okay, we, we, we make it go round so it spins and then we lean the gondola out like that as, as, as the century goes around so that the G vector goes that way and so that it makes us squash downwards into our seats just like the aircraft as it rolls and, and turns. That's fine when the thing's spinning but to make the centrifuge produce G very quickly this has got to go from either stationary or idling round very, very slowly and it's got to pick up speed very, very quickly and then slow down again very, very quickly. The aircraft doesn't have to do that. The aircraft just keeps flying along at 400 miles an hour, turns, and keeps flying along at 400 miles an hour. The centrifuge is just a little spinning round device. And so we've got an extra, extra force to deal with whilst the centrifuge is speeding up. And if you just had the pilot sitting there in a conventional-style centrifuge and started the thing to accelerate really, really fast, what they'd actually feel initially as the centrifuge started to speed up, is a force that pushed them backwards hard into their seat, a bit like a car accelerating, as the centrifuge started to build up speed very, very quickly. And that's absolutely nothing like what you'd feel in the aircraft. The aircraft doesn't suddenly accelerate um, as, as you pull G. So you'd get this very strong sensation of being flung backwards into your seat before the G vector slowly built up over um, a second or so, or a couple of seconds, um, into the right direction. And that's really, really very unrealistic. Um, so to get around that, instead of just having the gondola move in roll, the gondola also is now able to be controlled in pitch as well. And to control it in roll and pitch accurately while this goes on, you need to have powered motors to move them around, and these need to be uh, fairly sophisticated computer control that links the motion of the whole thing together. So now what you do, instead of getting a backwards force into your seat and then a gradually increasing squashy downwards force, is to pitch the pilot rapidly forwards at the onset of the acceleration, turning that acceleration that was pushing you backwards into your seat into an acceleration that pushes you downwards into your seat. Then gently, as the thing speeds up, you roll the thing forwards. You get a rapid pitch forward, and then a roll back as the thing accelerates. Ooh, that doesn't sound very nice either, does it? Because you're tilting this thing forward within less than a second. It's banging downwards and upwards. So there's quite a careful compromise to be made between all of these forces, which don't really exist in an aircraft, um, 
uh, to try and simulate something that feels like it is in an aircraft. So you can easily make people disorientated and feel sick just by the, the roll um, and the pitch, um, which are trying to get rid of G-forces in the wrong direction. Um, a lot of this is unfortunately a bit of a black art, a lot of... Um, a lot of just trying it and seeing, because to try and predict how the vestibular system is going to interpret all of this stuff during changing G-loads is very, very difficult. So an awful lot of work has gone on over the years into developing algorithms to get this uh, to roll and pitch, to get the centrifuge to feel like it's actually pulling G. Now, simulator technology has also improved a lot, and so it's not terribly difficult, actually, to stick in something that looks like a typhoon or any other fast jet cockpit, and to give them a nice big wrap-round display. That actually goes a long way to distracting the pilot, because you give him an aircraft to chase, uh, somebody to go and tail chase or try and shoot down, uh, distracts the pilot from thinking that he's sitting in a horrible tin can feeling sick. And that actually is quite powerful. The other thing that's very powerful is the peripheral retinal stimulation. As you get a big wrap-round field of view, it's a very strong stimulus to tell your body which way up you are and what's going on. Um, and that, both of those two t together, have uh, greatly reduced, together with the clever pitching and rolling, uh, have gone together to greatly reduce those nausea effects that were predominant in the, uh, in the earlier machines. So providing you keep your head fairly stable and looking straight ahead, these things aren't too bad now in terms of motion um, at all. Um, totally different matter if you start waving your head around because at the end of the day you are still spinning around um, in a very short radius turn and you will get Coriolis. Now, this is getting so good that some people have said, why not use this as a simulator? Why not use this as a flight simulator? Why not pull G in your missions? And to be brutally honest, the jury is still out on this. And there's a lot of interest because across the world, aircraft flight hours are reducing and reducing and reducing because there's no money to fly the aircraft um, because uh, it's just very expensive to fly. And synthetic training is a cheap alternative. So this is in the wings. Nobody's doing it for real for aircraft training yet, but the technology is evolving all the time. And I don't know whether this will um, uh, replace flying. Pilots certainly wouldn't want it to replace flying. It's not that cheap. There are practical problems of where you put the machines. Um, but potentially, at least potentially, it could provide synthetic training, um, which gives pilots the, uh, the, the flight environment and specifically gets them pulling G regularly. Because if you don't pull G regularly, your G tolerance goes, goes down. So if you pull G regularly, you get used to it. You get some physiological adaptation. If you pull G once a month, your G tolerance is not going to be very good. So uh, as a means of retaining pilots' G-tolerance, it may be possible. Now, what's the UK going to do? Well, we've been struggling with this for nearly 20 years since I've been doing this, trying to get a new centrifuge. I don't have time. We'd have to have a month of these lectures to go through what, what uh, the saga of the UK replacement centrifuge. But a colleague of mine very recently has pointed out what might be a cost-effective solution from Germany that might meet the current MOD uh, budgetary constraints. Uh, uh, obviously a mean-looking machine, tested out, in fact, by uh, one of my colleagues' wives. So there we are. Um, right, where are we going next? Well, space is back on the menu. Slightly moved to the right, possibly, by current economic conditions, but I suspect, being ever the optimist, only temporarily. And so I think space will once again become a driver uh, for the centrifuge. 
I've had uh, uh, the, the fortune to, to run on the uh, Virgin Galactic uh, mission profile on a century in the U.S., um, and uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's 6G, and it's quite sporting, and, and I don't think you really want to do that if you'd never done it before. If your first time was for real in the rocket, um, you might be a bit anxious. So I'm personally an advocate that space tourists, to get the most out of their space trip, um, uh, get some centuries training beforehand so they know what it's going to feel like and not spend half of it unconscious uh, because they've G-locked. <coughs> this is a, not good value for money, really. Um, so I, I certainly believe that, uh, that they should have centuries training. Of course, there's a cost in everything and there's a cost in centuries training. So there's a debate as to whether it's uh, who's going to pay for it. And it's certainly not mandatory at the moment. But uh, I, I certainly think <coughs> centuries experience for space tourism participants um, is a way to go. In the longer term... Short-arm centrifuges, these are not fantastically sophisticated devices at all, but there's a person just lying down there, to simulate artificial gravity are, are on the up again. This is a fairly recent one built in the US, and uh, this is for research into the uh, countermeasures, effects and countermeasures for long-duration space flight. I'm not going to talk about that in great detail, but certainly uh, the demineralization, the orthostatic uh, intolerance problems that come with lack of exposure to Earth's gravity. And there's a, a fair amount of interest um, uh, both in Europe <coughs> and Russia and uh, in the States on this. So short-arm centrifuges are relatively cheap and uh, relatively doable. And there's a fair few of them around. What actually interests me the most um, is this baby, because it's big and it's, and it's in space. And we've pushed right out now to 2025, and that's probably a bit optimistic, but this is a centrifuge. <coughs> this is NASA's Nautilus... X hypothetical proposed uh, exploration vehicle. So this is for long duration orbital flight or possibly um, planetary flight and uh, between planets. And this thing is a huge centrifuge, um, and uh, and, it, and it provides artificial gravity um, during space flight. And uh, and that's possibly where we will see um, further developments in uh, in space flight as as we go. So. <clears throat> As at 1901. Um, I apologize right now if I've missed out your favorite centrifuge uh, on the list. There were so many fine machines to choose from. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, the ride is now over. So I thank you very much uh, for your attention.